All right, let me, let me start off this morning. I want to say a, a couple of things, just an intro. I actually want to start off with an apology. Um, no one phoned me and said you did something terrible last week, but after my preach, I had a moment where I just was struck in my conscience and I, I threw out a really unhelpful comment around, I think it was about losing one of my kids or something like that, and you know, I don't want to say the joke again, but it was just intended in humor, but I thought afterwards, oh, what a, what a foolish thing to say, and that's some of the um, the space that we live in as we're kind of preaching, standing up front and, and you're speaking quickly or you saying stuff off the top of your head. And I just wanted to say if that offended anybody, I want to say it's unhelpful and um, just apologize for it. So start there this morning. Um, and then this, this weekend, actually uh, yesterday afternoon, fairly inconveniently, um, I was practicing for Philippians and getting ready for this morning, and um, I really sensed God wanting to bring something different to us, and if you've been here many times and you know me, that's not something I do uh, regularly, Um, but I'm going to preach out of Ezekiel, so if you want to go to Ezekiel 36, and the the way that we view this, just as a helpful moment to kind of stop and think about how we do our series, and the way that we view this is that we believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to us long in advance in terms of what we need to be doing. So we prepare and we plan as best as we can our series. So now, now you can throw your Philippians thing away that had all the dates and the little words on it. We already blew it last week, actually. Um, and so we plan and we prepare as, as best as we can. But then, in the same breath, we remain completely open to the Holy Spirit and saying, Father, when you want to, inverted commas, interrupt, when you want to do something different and it's for a particular time, we want to hear your voice and we want to be open to that as well. And I just want to... Um, point us to these two extremes because people love, we love extremes. We love the simplistic. And so the one extreme is like the guy stands up and every week it's like, oh, I had my sermon. And then I stood up and God just told me something completely different. And every week when that happens, you just basically, you're unprepared. That, that's charismatic for unprepared. All right. And that's, that's the one extreme side. And then the other extreme side, I'm not saying God can't do that. God does do that in moments where you, you've prepared something and as you're standing up in the worship, he stirs something and you think, I need to do something different here. But if that's your normal reality, that's a problem. And then the other extreme is that you're so tight and so rigid that not even the Holy Spirit can move your agenda. Not even the Holy Spirit can change your mind on what you're going to preach on this day, 10 years down the line. You've got it settled in your diary. Thank you very much. And so all that to say, I want to encourage you to adopt a posture this morning of excitement, of leaning in. Um, It's not going to be my most polished sermon by any stretch of the imagination, but I I want to ask us not to sit and kind of hold up our, our, our boards, you know, like when the guy dives and you hold up your six or your five or whatever. Don't nitpick. Don't lean in to nitpick. Lean in to hear what God wants to speak to us this morning. And if you've, if you've been here, I want you to trust the reputation that we have, that you know that we, we're committed to getting our theology right. We're committed to, to hearing and interpreting God's word correctly. But I'm just asking you for some grace this morning where it might not be as tight as what we would like. All right, we're going to try and do our, um, our iPad thing again. So good luck to us all. I think we're going to get it today. Are we up? How's that? Awesome. So you had Ezekiel 36. This morning, as I've titled my message, Father, we marvel at you. I just felt, and, and again, the language we use around how God speaks to us can be so uh, difficult. But if you want more and you want to come and ask me about that story, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you why I felt this for this morning. But this morning, I feel like God wants us to marvel at Him, to be in awe afresh at Him, to be astounded at His ways, to be astounded at His purposes in our lives as well as the lives of thousands and millions and billions of others who have gone before us and who live alongside us now. I want us to be astounded afresh at how God has planned and purposed for thousands and thousands of years that He would lead a people to a place where He says in Revelation 21, right at the end, He said, I am their God. And they are my people. And I dwell with them. I live with them. I come down and I'm with these people. And that's the same thing that we see right in the beginning in Exodus. It's the same promise, the same desire of God's heart. 
And as we marvel at him, I think he wants to do two things in us this morning. I think he wants to convict us of sin and apathy in our lives. When you marvel at the king, we showing up, it's like a spotlight showing up on, on our lives and it makes us realize what he's calling us to and what we aren't getting to. And then I think that the most important response is that when we, when we see something of the king, that we worship him, that we marvel at him, that we worship him. And I'm not just talking about experiencing him, and that's important. I'm not just talking about getting pumped up and excited about him, and that's important too. But those things are us. Those things are we experience, we get excited, we get, and those are good things, but I just feel this morning like there's nothing of our response, which is why I asked the, the musicians if we can do worship at the end this morning, so that we can just end by marveling and worshiping our God, just looking at Him and, and delighting and fixing our eyes on Jesus, as that old hymn says. So let me, let me um, orientate us in the book of Ezekiel. What we need to know about Ezekiel, this is what the kind of basics of, of the book. He was, a, he was a Levite priest and a prophet, obviously. He was carried into exile about 600 years before Christ, 597 before Christ. They were carried into exile by the Babylonians, a brutal bunch of people. Ezekiel was a man of influence. The Jewish elders and the people would come and sit in his house and he would expound Jehovah's word to them and tell them what he believed that God was, was speaking to him. And for, for 33 chapters in the book of Ezekiel, if you go and read it, so from chapter 1, 2, 3, round about there, there's the call, his, his call and God calling him uniquely and specifically. And then we see for the remaining chapters up to 33, he's preaching doom and gloom like you've never heard. It's annihilation. That's, they call it the annihilation that Ezekiel speaks about. And he's saying to the people, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Judah's going to be destroyed. They're going to be annihilated and they're never coming back in your lifetime. And then there's these false prophets who are saying, no, 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 we're going to go back tomorrow. God hasn't, God hasn't left us in Babylon for a long time. We're going to go back soon. And Ezekiel's the one who's, with the unpopular message who's saying, God is going to annihilate Jerusalem. And then we see in chapter 33, what Ezekiel has been preaching about comes true. And a runner comes in or a report comes through in Ezekiel chapter 33. You can go and read it. And they say, Jerusalem has fallen. It's been destroyed. It's been raised to the ground. And from that moment on, Ezekiel changes his tone completely. He does like a 180. And where he's been preaching for 33 chapters on annihilation, he begins to now preach about the resurrection of this nation, Israel. He begins to preach around the restoration of the people of Israel. He begins to speak about a new country. And he, he uses phrases like, that would be established forever. Forever. He uses phrases like, they will have one shepherd his name will be David, the son of David, one shepherd. Who do you think he's talking about? David died, as is pointed out in the Gospels. David died. He's not talking about King David. And so we see throughout this book in Ezekiel that there's these two, these two layers, and I wish I had more time to go into them. You're going to have to just trust me around this for today. But there's these two layers, and the one layer is very much factual Israel. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to, you've been scattered among the nations. God's going to bring you back. And he's actually talking to actual Israelite people. And God's going to go and pick them up from all these nations where they've been completely destroyed and, and split abroad. The families have been split into these nations. And he's actually going to physically bring them back together. That's the one obvious layer. But then there's this other second layer where he's talking about a future kingdom where the Gentiles and the Jews would be brought back together, where people who were scattered would be brought back together, where there'd be this one shepherd, this one David, this one Jesus who would come and rule over his people. And so as we're reading, I want you to remember these two things that are going on. All right, are you with me? We're in verse 20. Should come up over there, and I'm going to write and circle and whatnot so that you can follow me as we go. But when they came to the nations, this is speaking about the people who had been exiled, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, 
We're all okay with the word profaned. So they spoke bad of me. They cursed my name. They, they didn't give me credit. They profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. There's this in, incredulous aren't these the guys who God brought out of Exodus and now here they've been kicked out of their own land? They are the people of the Lord and yet they had to go out of their land. And then God says this, he says this beautiful thing, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they come, to which they came. And this gives us Number one, the first look at Ezekiel's, you can call it Ezekiel's salvation theology. But his first point is this, is God's concern, excuse my writing, for his name. God's concern for his name. We keep reading, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. Whose sake is it for? It's not for your sake. It's for the sake of my holy name. So God's concerned for his holy name. God's holy name. He's not doing it for their sake. He's doing it for his sake. And then he says, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the implication there is you profaned it, Israel. You the ones you the reason why they think this about me? Well, he just says it. I should have just carried on reading. Which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So do you see the first part of his, of his salvation theology, Ezekiel's theology, Ezekiel's salvation theology is that God is deeply concerned for his own name. He's concerned for his own name. Secondly, when we read this passage, we see that God's concern is how the nations view him. How do the nations view God? His concern is for the nations. And you can see it when they came to the nations. It's right here, two nations. When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. Go down a little bit to verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name when the house of Israel had profaned them among the nations to which they came. And then go right down to the end of verse 23. I'll circle it for you here. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. So when I say his salvation theology, this is him saying this is how God wants to make himself known. This is how he wants to bring salvation upon the people. He wants them to see his great name. He's envious for the glory of his name. And he wants all the nations to see it. And then there's something a little bit scary which links back into Philippians so beautifully which I didn't see until I started going through this. Quite a scary little phrase. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Through you, speaking to the people of Israel. What does that little phrase mean? What it means is that God would take the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel and the deep suffering of the people, the exile of the people, the exile to Babylon, and he says, I'm going to show my name great to the nations of the world. This is Ezekiel's salvation theology, right? Just stick with me. It'll make sense. It'll, it'll get clearer as we go. He says, I'm going to show the nations of the world through your suffering how good I am. 
And then from verse, from chapter 33 onwards, he says, I'm going to show the greatness of my name to the nations of the world through restoring you again. Through resurrecting what was dead. See, this is, this is true of Israel and it's true of the church today. When we're looking in Philippians, and in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at eternal perspective and asking God, what's going on when I'm facing stuff, when I'm facing circumstances which are incredibly real in my life, when I'm facing all sorts and all manner of things, what are you doing, God? And in a sense, when we look at Ezekiel, it's like God, through our suffering, is holding up a billboard to the world. And we're going to look at this in Philippians next week like a billboard to the world saying, they don't suffer like you. It's completely different. And then God holds up another billboard to the world in our restoration, in our resurrection, in our healing. And this little word vindicate doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound good, God. You want to do that on us? You want to do that in me? And God says, you, you profane my name in the nations. Because of you, they don't think I'm a powerful and true God. Therefore, I'm going to show them through you how powerful I am. And this applies for us today, just as it did to the Israelites, that God is going to reveal himself to the world through the church. If you heard the, the, the expression, goes, I don't know it word for word, but something like this, the church is the only organization which exists for the benefit of its non-members. We exist to show people who aren't yet believers the way to Christ. Who was it? Was it Ali in prayer meeting this morning used that beautiful um, quote? What was it about the beggars and the bread and the only the only reason that the? Can you say it for us? Do you remember it? Beautiful. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. He, but, but in Ezekiel, in this text we're going to look at this morning, it's here that we begin to see the incredible nature of God. He doesn't simply annihilate and thereby show his great power, which he's well within his rights to do. He doesn't just destroy the people of Israel. He doesn't just make nations tremble at his might, which he's well within his rights to do. We know that we deserve that. I deserve that. But look at, look at how he vindicates when he carries on. Look at the way that he begins to show his vindication, which is immediately a word where you think God's going to destroy them all over again. They went to Babylon. He's going to do something even worse to them. Look at how God begins to vindicate. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. There's number one again. Of my great name, which has been profaned which has been profaned among the nations, there's number two again, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, that's his goal, he wants the nations to have salvation, that I am the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now listen to how he's going to do it. There's the break over there. I will take you from the nations and gather you. This is God's vindication. I'm going to gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. This is a reference to the sacrificial system. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to make you new. From all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I... I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Can you see the vindication of our God in restoring his people? Who, who folk, who has a heart of flesh? What does a heart of stone mean? A heart of stone is a, is a heart of stone. It can't do anything. It can't fulfill its function. It can't beat. It can't live. It can't feel in our metaphoric sense of using the word heart. It can't do any of these things. It's just a lump of stone in your chest. Who are the people who carry a heart of, of, of flesh? Is it not us? 
Is this not the greatest miracle that makes us stop and marvel at our God that He would come and take out a heart of stone and in vindicating His name and showing to the nations that He is God, He does it by placing in us a heart of flesh, of beauty, of of cleansing us. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. God knows how many times I've asked for a new heart. Saying, Father, this one doesn't work right. Take it back to the shop for my refund. This one isn't working, God. It's full of stones. I want to put my spirit in you. The greatest sign and seal of our salvation. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. You. Just stop for a moment and think about you. That God would come and put a spirit, his holy spirit inside of us should shock us to the core. And I will deliver you from all my un- all your uncleanness. It's verse twenty nine. This is how he says the same thing. This is how God says it in in Isaiah, in this magnificent passage in Isaiah sixty one. He says, "The Spirit of the Lord God." Is upon me. Now remember this verse. Do you remember that in Luke 4, what happens with this text? Jesus stands up in the temple, right? And do you remember what happens? They give him a scroll and he begins to read and he reads Isaiah 61. This is the exact passage that Jesus on that day stood up and read over the people. Then he said these few little words. He said, Today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And then he sat down and you could hear a pin drop because they understood that what Jesus was saying is that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who's me? It was Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's saying, I am the one that was sent. I am the Messiah. But now look at what he was sent to do. I'm going to bring good news to the poor. I'm just going to circle all the. He has sent me to bind up. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm going to open the prison for those who are bound. I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is not a bad vengeance. This is people waiting to be justified, waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come and vindicate them. This is a happy metaphor. I'm going to comfort all who mourn. I want to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress. That doesn't translate into our language, but it's beautiful, right? It's a good thing. Instead of ashes. It's whatever you want instead of the ashes that are left after your fire is burnt out. I'm going to give them a beautiful headdress. I'm going to give them oil of gladness. Also doesn't quite translate. But none of us want mourning. Instead of mourning, I'm going to give you a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now listen to this. That they, who's they? Who's they? That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Let me ask you, who? Who's going to be called oaks of righteousness? The faint of spirit, the mourning, those who had ashes. My back? The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound, the prisoners, those who mourn. He says, I'm going to call you oaks of righteousness in my kingdom. You sinner, listen. You broken, listen. You mourning, listen. Oak of righteousness. We know what oaks are here in Stellenbosch. We see them. These glorious trees which stand as pillars among the trees. Oh, Father, would you raise up men and women oaks of righteousness here in our midst 
man, when I, when I read this, I just, I just, I don't know what else we do but marvel at the goodness of God. Why does he do it? That's who he does it for. Why does he do it? That he may be glorified. That's the why. Do you remember Ezekiel's salvation theology? Why is he doing this? Why is God doing Ezekiel 1 to 33 and then 34 to the end? He's doing it so that you will proclaim his name. That you will see his name. And that the nations, not just Israel, but that the nations will see and behold a king. And he'll do it through our suffering and through our resurrection. Through our glory. Through the wonderful moments in our lives. He's going to do it. Man, this is so, this Isaiah 61 and this Ezekiel 36 and 37 is so unlike us. What do we do with weakness? What do we do with brokenness? What do we do with the poor? What do we do with the, those who are mourning? We, we, we want to discard. We want to shut them up. We don't celebrate weakness. We celebrate strength. And here God comes and just completely turns the tables. This is how Job says it. The same thing. I'm just taking you to different texts, showing you exactly the same thing. This is a man, Job, who faced, if you haven't read the story, some of you call it Job, so it's actually Job. But this is a man who faced every tragedy possible. You think you've faced tragedy in your life? He faced more. You think you've had suffering? He suffered more. You think you've questioned God? He questioned God more. And this is what he said, blessed, blessed, good word, good, blessed. Give me blessings, God, is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Now listen to this. For he, God, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hand, his hands heal. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look. In the word of God, you'll see this pattern of God, that it's the salvation theology of Ezekiel, that it's the God who will make us suffer for his name's sake and for his glory that the nations would know that he is who he says he is, and it's the God who would resurrect us again and bring us to life in our sin, resurrect us and put his spirit inside of us so that we could say he wounded us, but he also binds us up. And we could say he shatters us. David speaks about him shattering his bones. God, you have shattered my bones. And yet his hand heals. Jesus, in a more obscure way, says it in Mark 2 and in other places too. This is just one that I particularly love. The story is that Jesus is reclining at a table and there's a whole bunch of sinners who are with him. People that you wouldn't expect Jesus to be hanging out with. Tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the good guys, in, the, in theory, the guys who understood God, who knew God, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why? Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know who he's come for? Don't you know he should be here for the good guys, for us? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are brokenhearted, those who are poor, those who moan, those who mourn. Either of those would actually work. Those whom he wounds, those, those whom he shatters. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not just here for those who already get it. I'm here for those who don't. And later on, we see the New Testament expounding this thought over and over again as the Gentiles, to the, to the amazement of the Jewish establishment of the day, to the amazement of, of the apostles themselves. When they say the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, just like he fell upon the Jews, it says they were completely amazed. And they marveled at these things. They marveled at this God. So God's concern for his own name, 
Secondly, his concern for the nations and how they view him. They want, he's, he desires that they would say, that, that they know that I am God. They know that I am God. And that God would use our suffering and restoration as a signboard to the nations. You know, when we think about this gospel, I don't know, for me, the immediate parable, we actually were praying about it in our, in our prayer meeting in our little group this morning, is this parable of where Jesus speaks about the man who goes out, the merchant who goes out, and he's, he's, he finds this one pearl, just this one pearl that's so precious that it says he sells everything he owns. Everything. What would it take for you to, take, to find something so precious that specialized bicycle, that, that one thing, that, that motor car, that whatever it is, that one thing that's so precious for you that you would sell everything and risk the wrath of your wife. <laughs> then it says it's like a man who's digging in a, in a field and he finds a treasure. He finds a treasure and it's so precious, it's so incredible. He marvels at this treasure so much that he, that, he, that he buries it quickly and he goes and he sells everything. We're not talking about the ethics of the story here. But he goes and he sells everything in order to go to that man that owns the field and say, I'll buy your field. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is such. It's like that. When you grasp this gospel, when you see the beauty of what it is that he's done, that he's taken us in our sin, in my sin, in my brokenness. In my impatience, in my irritation, in my flaws, in my stance against God, even if you have good intentions, they're not going to help you when you stand against God. That he would take that and bring me into this restored, resurrected life. When, when that sits front and center, I found the, the pearl. When that sits front and center, I found the treasure in the field and nothing Nothing else is appealing. Not TV, not my career. And these are good things, some of them. But none of the things which, which drew me, not Liverpool. That one has died really hard in me, I must be honest. That's one of my, my strongest idols. But nothing, nothing comes close to the surpassing worth when we understand the salvation that is ours. Let's move on to Ezekiel 37. Go there with me if you would in your Bibles. And Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. I want you to imagine that you're there. Try and picture this scene because it's pretty gross. The valley, it was full of bones and it's human bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. Been there for a long time, baking in the sun. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And he answers very wisely and says, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinew upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Do you see how he's going after that again and again? You can see God's interest is that the nations know that he is the Lord. So, Ezekiel, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. I grew up in a Zulu church and we had an incredible song around this. Wamemeze Ezekiel. Wetsi matambo, matambo, tangana. means the bones came together. And then it says they began to kichima. Kichima means they began to run. And we used to sing this whole song. We used to sing the story of Ezekiel. It was beautiful. Maybe one day I'll teach you. And I looked and behold, 
there was sinew on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What an incredible picture. Read that one again later when you're at home. Sit down and read that slowly and just, just say, Father, show me what's going on in that valley. Show me. There's so many different layers. But, and, and like I said, I know this is the one layer is it's talking explicitly about Israel. But I believe there's the second layer where, where we can see our own salvation in some of these stories that Ezekiel and the visions that he's seeing. And if we look at the story, well, who are we? Who are we in the story? We're the bones. We're the bones scattered across the valley. The many, many, many bones that have been baking in the sun, that have been baking in our, in our sins. We are the ones, just like this is, I love the parallel here to the heart of stone that he has in, in chapter 36. Like it's impossible to have a heart of stone that's alive. It's impossible, right, to have all these bones live. But we're the, we're the bones. We're the ones that should be impossible for us to live again. There shouldn't be a way. There is no way. We are the slain. We are the poor, in Isaiah's words, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners who are bound. It's us who, is, who are mourning. It's us with the faint spirit. And yet it's us that he says, oaks of righteousness. Just, just, just turn to the person next to you for a moment and say, you're an oak of righteousness. <laughs> now, why are you giggling? Why is it so hard to do that with a straight face? See, we, we are the ones that, that God causes to come back together. Can you hear the rattling sound? Church, can you hear the rattling sound as the bones come back together? And then by the Spirit of God, He breathes sinew over us. He breathes flesh over us. And then in His final thing, He breathes life into us. And that moment when a, when a person first comes to know Christ, and it's like the gasping of a man who was drowning. <gasps> and the Spirit of God has been breathed into you, and you're never the same again. Yes, you can go back to your sin, but you're like a bear with a sore head. You can't enjoy your sin anymore. You used to find it so pleasurable. Now you, you want to you run away from God and you run straight into this, this scenario where everything just, you've tasted the good. And this is bitter to you. It's undesirable. It leaves you, it leaves you guilty. We are the ones prophesied over. Man, this, this how, how else do we respond but marvel? How else do we respond but marvel at this king? And then we stand on our feet. And I think when I read this text in Ezekiel, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It takes me straight away. My mind runs, runs all the way through to Revelation, where it says one day, one day, a day is coming where we're going to stand with every tribe, every nation, every language. All I know for certain is we won't be singing in Afrikaans. That's all I know because it's a very odd language to sing in. But we're going to stand there one day on this beautiful day and we're going to sing in heavenly languages. Thousands of languages with billions of people who served God in the most different scenarios to us that we could ever imagine. Hollywood has no idea. We stand on our feet an exceedingly great army verse 11 in Ezekiel 37 then he said to me son of man these bones are the whole house of Israel the whole house 
Israel. You can go and look at that in your own time and see what, how we get included into this, how we grafted into the vine, into this whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Yes, it's Israel, but it's us as well. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall, what's he interested in? Still going after this one thing. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and raise you from your graves. Do you remember last week when we were speaking about eternal perspective? I took you to a verse I couldn't find in Second Corinthians, and I was lucky that I had it on my notes. But it's the verse where Paul, where he begins to speak about this incredible um, journey that they've been on, and they become so overwhelmed that he says we were overwhelmed to the point of death. And we're speaking a little bit around depression and around this, this dark, dark place that we can get into. And we see the Apostle Paul reach that place. And then what does he appeal to? What does he appeal to when he's in that deepest, darkest space? He says, we were as men who were dead. And then he says, but thank God because he can raise the dead. We were dead, but thank God because he can raise the dead. And it's like a similar thought here in Ezekiel when he says, you were dead. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're cut off. I will open your graves. I'll pull you out of your grave. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live in a place in your own land. Then, then, when these things happen, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yeah, Father, we marvel at you. What kind of a God? What kind of a God does this? And sometimes we, we get so hung up on God. Do you save everyone? How come some and what kind of a God saves any? That's the real question. What kind of grace is this that any should come? There's one more remarkable thing that I want to show you from this passage and then we're going to be done. When I, when I first read it, I thought, what's the most remarkable thing about this passage? And then I thought, well, it's that, it's that God created, right? And then I thought, well, if you believe in a creator God, this is child's play. If you believe God spoke the word and the entire world came into being, if you believe in that creator God, taking a few piddly bones on, on a valley and, and putting them together and putting flesh on them and breathing life into them is, is easy for God, right? So I was just thinking about this passage and pondering about it. And then I had this thought about how incredibly remarkable it is that God uses Ezekiel, allows Ezekiel the privilege of participating in the story. And if we go, if we go back there, I think it's here. And we look at verse 3. And God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? He asks a man for his opinion. He answers quite wisely. And then he says this here. I answered, O oh Lord God, you know, then he said to me, prophesy. Says to Ezekiel, you, you do it. I want you to prophesy. I mean, why didn't God just stand back in this text and say, look, boy, dad's going to show you what to do. Ba, 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 ba. And just do it. And yet when you read this text, all over this text is, is Ezekiel being invited in to participate with God. God's still doing it. Let's go through it and, and have a look. Let's go down to verse, to verse 7. 
So I prophesied. So I prophesied as I was commanded. So he obeys what God had commanded. And as I prophesied, as I did it, I actually did something. As I did it, as I participated with God, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. And then go down to verse 9. Then he said to me, so this is the command of God again. Then he, let me write it, I can't talk, and it. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. You, Ezekiel, you say it. And say to the breath, this is the spirit of God which is about to fill these dead bodies. And he's saying to Ezekiel, you prophesy. You open your mouth. You participate in the story. So, like we all should, he obeyed. So I prophesied as he commanded me. Can you imagine the awe that fell upon Ezekiel as at, at his word, as God had commanded him, and as he spoke these prophetic words over this valley, a breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. And look at what he prophesies. Thus says the Lord God. He's not claiming his own, his own power. Thus says the Lord God. It's God who does it. Now, I know that you're not Ezekiel, right? And I know that I'm not Ezekiel, but I also know that there's this pattern throughout Scripture. I could take you to hundreds of passages and show you how God chooses to partner with men and women through Scripture in order to change the world. Over and over and over again. Here, listen to this. That God takes ordinary and flawed Men and women, think about yourself. Think about me. Think about your wife, your husband, whatever helps you get this picture. God takes ordinary and flawed men and women. He commands them to do remarkable things. And when they obey him, he works powerfully through them. That's what I want you to think about in this passage in Ezekiel. And then I want you to think when you go home about Abraham, about Moses, about Deborah, about the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Job. I want you to think about Queen Esther. I want you to think about the disciples. I want you to think about Paul the Apostle. I want you to think about Priscilla and Aquila. And these, these men and women who litter the pages, and I could, you could have hundreds of them. Rahab, the prostitute, for goodness sake. I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in my lineage, in the lineage of God's Son. Or maybe more modern times, Hudson Taylor, Isabel Kuhn, Mother, Mother Teresa, and millions and millions more whose names will only be known to us one day in heaven. Remember my first point was that we marvel at God because of his great salvation that he takes the dead and raises them to life and that even in our suffering he's, he's showing, showcasing his name to the world my second point is the same thing we marvel at God because he uses men and women he uses us it's a case for great marveling it's a case for incredible worship that God doesn't only take the dry bones. He doesn't only take the, the broken and depleted and make them oaks of righteousness. But that he then calls these, these newly formed people in the metaphor of Ezekiel 37 to partner with them in the most unlikely partnership the world has ever seen. I remember when I was 19, I remember a message so clearly that Pete preached up in Maritzburg. And he, he entitled it something like this. The unlikely story of the ham sandwich and God turning to him and saying, let's go change the world. And he said, well, you the ham sandwich if you missed that. The most unlikely partnership. And then we get to marvel that God uses those around us. And we get to marvel most maybe that he uses us. When we stop and consider, I mean, I, I know me. I mean, you can ask my wife. She can give you like a long list. And then I'd be like, is that all? Because I know even more about myself. And then God says, hey, boy, I want to use you. Who? No, no, you. 
That's, that's marvelous for me. Some of, us, some of us are doing that already. And I want, to, I want to say you're an encouragement to us. See, we, we marvel through the body. We get to see each other doing things in God's name and stepping into gifts and, and, and flowing in these things. And we say we marvel at you, God, through what you're doing in so-and-so's life. We marvel at you that you've put this gift in a person who on, on, on appearance looks weak. And yet they, they, they're doing something that's just remarkable. I think of a, a stay-at-home mom. All our moms are in the mom's room. I hope you're getting this on the live feed. But all they've done is they've heard the command of God. And they've obeyed, some of them, at great personal expense. And God is doing amazing things through you. Doing amazing things through you bringing up your children. I think of Sean and Sue. I think of you guys. And I believe the Father is calling you. And I know you know this already. But you're learning how to hear His command. And I can see you. It's like, it's like I'm watching a canvas unfold in front of me. And, and your only fitting response to the Master is, is when He says, I want you to do this is how high? I want you to jump. How high, Lord? Is our answer. But He wants to do some amazing things through you guys. And it's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to us as a body as we see you stepping into that. And God taking your, your weakness and your brokenness and saying, I'm going to make that magnified for my glory. That's a beautiful thing. I'll tell you, I think, of, I think of you when I was praying this morning. I believe you are a woman who knows the voice of the shepherd. You're a woman who spends much time and you know his command. And I wanted to, I wanted to speak his words over you of approval this morning. Saying he sees what you do in the quiet place. Your obedience to him. Dev, our projector man. I think of a man, a quiet man but faithfully seeking God in the quiet places. I want to encourage you. Your understated, faithful way is an encouragement to us, Dev. It's an encouragement to see how you hunger after God's word and you're not satisfied with a trite answer that you want to go another round. Do you believe, Dev, that God can use you to do remarkable things? Not because you're Dev, because he's God. And guys, I could, we could spend two hours going around this room encouraging one another about the things that, that we feel are marvelous about God because of you, because of what we see in you and because of how we see God working in you. I want to take a supporter. <laughs> I want to encourage us this morning. This is something that my wife and I talk. Kate is my wife. If you haven't met her, she's wonderful. Best person in the world. We talk about this often. You know, you know that, like the joke, you know, you only had one thing. You know, you messed it up and you only had one thing to do. I just gave you one instruction. It's, it really does boil down to this when it comes, when it comes to, to Christianity and to following God. Our job really is just one thing. Master, what, what are you saying? I will do. Forget the expectations of people. Guys, you have no idea if I can share on behalf of my wife for a moment. Sorry, babes, I'm being vulnerable for you. She isn't in, she's in that side of the babies. You have no idea the expectations that people place on a, on a pastor's wife simply because she's the pastor's wife. I mean, how many of you in the corporate world have some demand on your wife because you're in the corporate world? Think about it, right? I have to keep going to her and saying again and again and again, babes, what is God calling you to do? Forget their voices. Yes, it's important. Yes, we want to know what you want. That's great. But forget their voices. If God is not calling you to that, don't do it. Don't. You had one job. You got one job. I've got one job. Father, what are you calling me to? Implicit in that is not God, what are you calling them to? The person that I'm, that I'm comparing myself to. Oh, I should be doing more. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. And we busy our lives with so much junk. And we end up completely ineffective for the kingdom of God because we, we're hearing so many other voices and expectations and everything. Father, what are you? What are you saying? If we can get that one thing clear, what are you calling me to? What are you asking me to do? And I'll do that. Not the preacher boy. What you say, God. And so there's some of us that we could take 
great encouragement from. And then there's, there's others of us that I think are too afraid to obey. What if, what if he demands something of us that we don't want to give? It's like the, the Aslan quote. But the lion, is, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. Others of us are, are refusing to get healing. We refuse to get healed. We've identified ourselves so strongly with the wounds that we don't know what else to talk about if we have to take those wounds away. If we let God heal us of that divorce or, or that hurt that happened in the church from that stupid leader years and years and years ago who did this or said that or whatever, once, maybe, maybe it's like once I trusted you, God, and then you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. And we're so caught up in the wound that we can't hear his voice calling us anymore. Maybe this is one that I struggle with. Maybe we're just arrogant. Maybe we're just downright arrogant. Unwilling to lay our stuff down. Unwilling to lay our career down. And, and you guys, you know me. You hear me. We, I'm not talking about you know, going to full-time ministry. We are all full-time ministers. Your career is your, is your marketplace, is your mission field. We know this, right? But some of us are emphasizing our career up here, our family down here, and then God somewhere down there. It's not right. It's not right. Some of us are so precious around our time that we can't obey the voice of God because, well, that's going to cut into survival on Monday night. How dare that oak ask me to come to prayer meeting? I'll be tested on this soon with the World Cup football. Or maybe, maybe you're just feeling insecure and you're not sure of your gifts. You don't know which, which way to turn. I want to encourage you this morning. Do you know that the one who calls you is the one who will equip you? That's his promise. God is not going to ask you. You can, you can bank this, right? You can take this to a Swiss bank and bank it. God is not going to ask you to do something which is not going to be, listen to the words carefully, ultimately for your good. God is not going to call me to something in ministry which is going to cannibalize and destroy my family. God is not going to call me to something which ultimately will not be for my good. You can bank it. But then you can also bank this thought. Very often you're not going to have a clue what that good is. And you just got to trust. That's your job. Father, what are you calling me to? Silence the other voices. Of course we're accountable. We go and we hear, hey, what do you think? Do you think I you know, should be a missionary in China? No, no I don't. You know, and, we, and we hear from our friends and, our, and our, of course, but Father, what are you calling me to? I want to obey you. We sat in, in March this year and we spoke about injustice. And we spoke about justice initiatives and serve Stellenbosch and things that God was wanting us to do. And, and I just sensed that some of us cried. Some of us had our hearts stirred by God. Some of us, something in recognition leapt up and said, God, that's, that's something in me. There's a gift in me that I want, to, I want to get involved there. And now a few months later, it's kind of just, we forgot or we got busy or we were afraid or we were insecure or we felt inadequate. Some of you in that time when we sat and, and we spoke about Serve Stellenbosch, we were reminded of things that you know that God has called you to that have been on the back burner for way too long and it just feels too hard to go back and get it off that back burner. God gave some of us brand new ideas, fresh ideas to bring justice, fresh ideas to, to combat injustice, to help the poor in our city and other cities. If you're from elsewhere, our Kokstad contingent. Go back and do it in Kokstad. Kokstad's a great place. Almost as nice as Harding. My challenge to us is what have, what have we done with it? What have we done with it? We sat and we heard about evangelism for a whole month with Wally and Shirley. A whole month. Here's where I want to close. I want to repeat the phrase that I said earlier. God takes ordinary and flawed men and women. 
commands them to do remarkable things. And when they obey him, he works powerfully through them. So what we're going to do is ask our musos, if you guys will come up. We're going to respond. And later on, after the meeting, we can get you up front and pray for you if you feel like you need to be prayed for. And that's, that's wonderful. But I want us just in our own space before our Father to take this stuff, this, this Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, this marveling, God, my salvation, God, that you would include us. God, I haven't done that. All of these different thoughts which have come through in the, in the message this morning. And I want us just for 15 minutes or so just to fix our eyes on this king and marvel at him. Say, Lord, come and, come and stir that stuff inside of me again. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and worship together. Our king and our God, we thank you. That you are the one who redeems, who rescues through centuries. That you are able to take dead bones and make them live again. That you go right into the grave and pull us out of the grave. God, no matter what we've been involved in this morning. No matter what we've got up to in our lives. We can find precedent in your word, God, for men, who've, men and women who've done worse things. And yet been raised to fruitfulness and usefulness in your kingdom, God. Father, we come this morning and we marvel at you. We worship you, our King. Come on, let's stand to our feet and begin to worship our King.